I'm Vicki Lawson. And I'm Sarah Elwood. We're the co-directors of the Relational Poverty Network, which is a collaboration among over 500 scholar activists and educators working on questions of impoverishment in the broadest sense. The network convenes conversations amongst people working in very different places around the globe in order to trouble taken for granted ideas about who is poor and why. And this podcast, titled New Poverty Politics for Changing Times, brings you a series of conversations between poverty scholars, activists, and educators. They think about how to keep questions of poverty and inequality front and center at a time when poverty is not part of the national conversation nearly enough. A foundational premise of the work is that poverty is always produced in relation to privilege and produced through multiple intersecting injustices. It's our hope that these conversations prompt you to think hard about questions of impoverishment and to collaborate with people who are working hard on these issues. Thanks for listening. Good morning. I'm Anania Roy, Professor of Urban Planning, Social Welfare and Geography and Director of the Institute on Inequality and Democracy at UCLA. I'm also a member of the steering committee of the Relational Poverty Network. Today, I have the delightful task of interviewing Nicholas de Genova, a leading scholar in border and migration studies. An anthropologist by training, Professor de Genova has had a decisive influence in shaping our understanding of the role of border making in the constitution of nationalisms. His work stretches across the North Atlantic, casting critical scrutiny on both the United States and Europe. Professor de Genova has also extended that critique to the institution he inhabits, the elite university, speaking out against academia's complicity in imperialism. I've admired his scholarship and public engagement from afar, and so it is a very special treat to be able to talk with him today. The Relational Poverty Network has asked us to consider the following theme, new poverty politics for changing times, what emerging nationalist populisms mean, for poverty and inequality. And we will do so through a range of conceptual and methodological questions. So Nick, let's get started. That sounds great. Thank you for the very gracious invitation and uh, the gracious introduction. Um, where shall we begin? So I thought we'd start um, with um, an ongoing line of inquiry in your work that has been so influential for me and so many of my students, which is your argument about the legal production of migrant illegality. So tell us a little bit more about how you would like us to think about migrant illegality and why that might matter for how we study Poverty and inequality. Mm. Um, well, just to uh, briefly offer a, a bit of background, um, you know, my work originated as uh, an investigation of uh, Mexican migration to the United States, and one of the one of the inevitable questions that emerges at the very start of such an investigation has to do with the ways in which Mexicans have been produced historically as the iconic so-called illegal alien. Um, how Mexicans in particular have come to occupy this, uh, this um, dubious position of being, you know, sort of effectively synonymous with uh, migrant illegality. And that took me on a journey um, into the legal history behind um, U.S. immigration law and uh, border enforcement practices. Um, and one of the things that I discovered, um, which was quite remarkable really, is that um, prior to 1965, with the landmark overhaul of U.S. immigration law, there really had never been 
any numerical quotas um, for migration from Mexico. Um, and so my lifetime, as it were, and my research coincided with what we could call, um, you know, the era of, um, the era of uh, a kind of unprecedented production of migrant illegality for Mexicans in particular in a, or, or rather what was in, in effect for all of the Western hemisphere, for all of Latin America, but in a disproportionate and deleterious way um, uh, for Mexicans in particular. Now that's not to say that Mexicans weren't already, uh, you know, the sort of iconic illegal alien um, prior to 1965, but me, it means that what I discovered was that in the history of lawmaking with respect to uh, migrant illegality, one could identify a series of critical junctures and crucial moments um, where legislative interventions actually continued to uh, remake and reshape uh, the contours of migrant illegality in a way that continuously remade Mexicans in particular as a very favored um, migrant workforce in the United States and, and as the sort of numerically most important one into a migrant workforce that was being increasingly illegalized. Um, so while there had been what are called qualitative features of immigration law prior to 1965 that made it on the one hand pragmatically easy for Mexicans to migrate in a way that was uh, officially out of status, quote unquote irregular, and eventually uh, characterized as illegal, um, there nonetheless had never been any numerical restrictions until the 1960s. And with the introduction of those numerical restrictions for the Western Hemisphere, which uh, were born in a particularly heavy way by Mexico and migrants from Mexico, um, then we saw very dramatically and very quickly a continuous um, process of further restriction. Um, that meant that people who had been migrating for generations, communities that had depended upon migration for generations, uh, where we're looking at really a history of well over 100 years of migration and following on the heels of a guest worker program, the Bracero program, of more than 20 years of active and enthusiastic importation of Mexican labor um, on a contract basis, on a quote-unquote legal basis, you have a very abrupt illegalization of those migrant uh, movements, of those uh, migrant infrastructures, of those mm -hmm. migrant dependencies. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and so, so this is the beginning of the story. Um, what, I, what I think that, in, in, you know, what I think that contributes to a study of new poverty um, is that we see the the, the deployment of the law, in this case immigration law, as a kind of tactic that in a very deliberate way intervenes into the social field mm -hmm. and produces conditions of possibility right. for the production of new categories of people, new categories in this case of migrants um, and new ways in which uh, certain migrants can be produced in a very specific, mm -hmm. sociopolitical and historically specific way um, as targets of the law that then renders people extraordinarily vulnerable to the recriminations of the law that allows for that condition of illegality to continue to be refined further um, and to continually be uh, revised in a way that continues to sort of multiply the punitive ramifications of that condition of illegality. And so what it, what it ensures is the availability of a workforce who carry with their very existence uh, extraordinary um, extraordinary um, encumbrances and but always potentially punitive consequences, repercussions, uh, and above, above all the horizon of the possibility of deportation. And the other side of that illegalization is, of course, those who then, whose presence is uh, normalized. So I'm thinking about also the ways in which you have written about racial whiteness. Mm -hmm. 
And so tell us a little bit about what you mean by that and what the relationship might be between sort of illegalization and particularly in Mexicans as sort of the iconic illegal alien and the constitution of whiteness. Yeah. So this again, um, you know, in the very sort of, at the very origin of uh, the research that I did at the beginning of my career, wanted to know what was the particularity, the specificity of, um, of uh, Mexicanness in this particular uh, historically specific migration and this particular historical relationship between the U.S. and Mexico. Um, so that relationship between the U.S. and Mexico originates in imperial violence. That, you know, that relationship begins with the, the aggressive westward expansion of the United States across the North American continent and the colonization of territories, uh, including through a war of annexation, um, that is instigated in a very cynical ma manner against Mexico. And uh, so right from the very beginning, you have the conquest of Mexican territory, the incorporation of Mexican territory and Mexican people into the fabric of the, uh, the larger social fabric of uh, this um, continuously expanding U.S. nation state. Um, and... Um, and nonetheless, a complete dependency on Mexican labor in certain sectors of, uh, of that um, economy, that frontier economy, mm -hmm. um, across what we now think of as the American Southwest, uh, which historically, of course, was the north of Mexico. And we're talking about a landmass that's comparable to Germany and France combined that was mm -hmm. stolen from Mexico outright. Uh, we're talking about a moment in history in the United States where the U.S. Congress deliberated openly about whether or not to annex the entirety of Mexico, where there was an open debate about taking the whole country and rounding up mm -hmm. the Mexican population and uh, driving them into Indian reservations. Um, so the deep grammar of the colonization of the North American continent uh, with respect to Native Americans is inseparable from a certain kind of imperialist logic of conquest that plays out with respect to Mexico. And then, of course, there is an abundant uh, racial discourse that produces Mexicans as, um, in various ways, as a mongrel race, mm -hmm. as some kind of hybrid uh, monstrosity that combines European and, and Native American and African-American um, legacies. Mm -hmm. um, but, but what was more common was to simply imagine that there was a certain kind of elite within Mexican society who were some kind of debased category of whiteness, um, but a great majority who were uh, effectively um, re you know, reducible to uh, American Indians, Native Americans. Right. Um, and, and so again, there, this, this is all played out in a very emphatic and explicit way um, with respect to the conquest of Mexican territory. The, the end decision that produces the U.S.-Mexico border is in fact about taking as much territory and as few people as possible. Um, and those were the deliberate calculations. Mm -hmm. uh, and of course those people then, um, one sort of facile and superficial reading of that history uh, would suggest that those people then became US citizens. What they in fact became were subjects of the US state uh, without citizenship and with a certain kind of very um, open-ended gesture about the possibility for citizenship that would be determined later. And what that meant in practice was that as those territories became states of the United States, their state constitutions would define the terms and conditions for the integration of the, Mex the newly colonized Mexican mm -hmm. population as, um, as uh, citizens of the United States. And, and indeed, those turned out to be white supremacist constitutions that explicitly reserved the possibility of citizenship only for those Mexicans who could be called white. Right. So you have a very important juncture in the historical production of whiteness in U.S. history play itself out in relationship specifically to the question of the colonized Mexican territories and the people of those territories. Um, and, and it means that the great majority of Mexicans are produced as a category of non-whiteness which from the beginning is uh, neither white nor black. Right. And in that, sense, in that sense, 
you know, that episode in U.S. history and the history of white supremacy in the United States is pivotal for thinking about a great deal of other um, histories and, uh, of other histories and racial formations that are increasingly important as we go into the 20th century. to take some of these questions and think a bit about your most recent published book, uh, which is titled The Borders of Europe, Autonomy of Migration, Tactics of Bordering, an edited volume. And there um, I am struck by the ways in which you have us think not only about illegalization, but about sheer death. And you have this line about the Mediterranean as a mass grave. Um, how should we consider the relationship between impoverishment, racialization, and necropolitics? Hmm. Um, it's, a, it's a very important question and uh, very astutely sort of links up these last two questions together because, um, because of course, if we can make that argument about um, the borders of Europe, uh, and particularly the maritime borders across the Mediterranean um, and their role in producing the conditions of possibility for what has been an escalation, continuous proliferation of migrant and refugee deaths crossing uh, the borders of Europe, um, which for me makes the borders of Europe uh, also an overtly racial question, um, then we could make a similar argument about the U.S.-Mexico border where there's also been an escalation in deaths, right. uh, being, uh, you know, over the last few decades, mm -hmm. um, but especially escalating since the 1990s. Mm -hmm. And um, very importantly, there was um, an internal memo of um, what was then the INS, the Immigration and Naturalization Service, um, where um, a strategic plan was put in place that very deliberately was about the fortification of the physical barriers of those border crossings of easiest passage, the militarization and physical fortification of the places where migrants crossed with the greatest ease. Ordinarily, those areas of the borders that were um, basically continuous conservations between, uh, Amer you know, between U.S. cities and Mexican cities that were um, adjacent to each other, that were continuous and contiguous and, and really made it quite easy to, to cross. And the, the calculation was precisely that if you could close up, if you could basically foreclose the possibility of crossing in those places of easiest passage, you would be driving migration from Mexico across the border into places that were much more perilous. So it was a very- Going to be places of death. Yeah, that were, that were going to be more deadly more dangerous, more deadly, where people would be exposed to the greater extremes of the heat in the desert, to the cold of the night, um, in very barren landscapes, um, and where people would have to make very long and arduous journeys across difficult geographies. Um, so it was a very deliberate intervention, mm -hmm. and it was a very calculated one that anticipated the escalation in migrant and refugee deaths crossing the border. Um, and that's precisely what's happened. So in a way that was perfectly predictable and systemic, um, you know, certain strategies of enforcement produce the conditions of possibility for an escalation mm -hmm. in deaths that are indeed overwhelmingly, uh, in the case of Europe, black and brown bodies, an accumulation of black and brown bodies along the, the coasts of European countries. In the case of the United States, an accumulation of predominantly Latin American brown bodies, right, um, right, exclusively, um, but really disproportionate again, disproportionately Mexican, um, and increasingly also Central American. Right. Then now that border making, of course, happens not only at the physical fortified border, but in so many of our cities and communities, and you have also um, focused on what you call the migrant metropolis. So this is sort of the urbanist in me. I, I want uh, to know a bit more about what you mean by the migrant metropolis and how we think about not only the proliferation of borders, but of these places of death um, in so many of our cities and communities. 
Before I move to that question, let me yes. just pick up one last thread related to the last conversation yes. with you. Yes. Which is, you know, crucial for understanding the larger economy of power at work and the production of migrant illegality. As I suggested earlier, the ultimate horizon that defines the illegalized migrant condition is deportation, the possibility of mm -hmm. deportation. Mm -hmm. um, and I've made a strong point of saying that um, it's not it's not so much deportation per se, but the possibility of deportation, susceptibility right. to the possibility of deportation. So deportability um, as a really crucial condition that we have to focus on. Exactly. And deportability is inseparable from the disposability yes. of those migrant lives. Mm -hmm. um, in the first place, the, the, the disposability of their labor, the possibility right. that right. they could be physically removed from the space of the nation state, coercively forced out, expelled. Um, uh, but, that, but that form of expulsion that comes with deportation is an expulsion from every, aspect, every meaningful aspect of the life that people are making, right? So it means that there's a production of their disposability and the production of mass death is not separable from that disposability, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. which is again, uh, a frankly racialized condition. Um, a feature of uh, you know the specific kind of racial subordination that comes with a disproportionate production of illegality and deportability for particular categories of people um, and, and historically specific migrations, right? Um, so that disposability um, is is crucial when we think about migrant deaths because, like deportations, the great majority don't get deported; they remain undeported, and the great majority don't die. You know, some are made to die, some are effectively killed, some are killed outright, but many are made to die in the crossing, uh, and yet the great majority are not, which means that the, that the more and more arduous, the more and more deadly the crossing, the more and more it serves as a kind of obstacle course, an endurance test, which is effectively an apprenticeship for a lifelong subordination as labor uh, on the other side once people get across. And in that sense, then we see uh, the production of more and more deadly borders, of more and more militarized borders, of more and more physically reinforced borders as only the beginning of the process that then can be best examined for the great majority of people once they get, a, get to the other side and once they begin to make a life. And that's where this question comes in about the micro metropolis, right? Because the other thing that has happened Increasingly is that border enforcement is no longer confined only to the, the physical space of the border, the actual border line, but instead becomes an extended zone of enforcement that eventually encompasses the entirety of the space of the state and um, plays itself out in all sorts of so-called interior spaces um, in association with the everyday life of migrants um, in the places they live and the places that they work. Um, so you have... So you have um, you know, border checkpoints that are 100 or more miles from the actual border, in the case of the US-Mexico border, where um, people are simply obstructed in the course of traveling on a road because, uh, because the purview of border enforcement has been broadened. Um, but, you know, and that's been true for a long time. Mm -hmm. um, but it means that people who actually live in those areas find themselves subjected to a kind of proliferation of checkpoints in their everyday life if you actually live close to, physically close to the border uh, as uh, an illegalized migrant, it means that every feature of your, of your ordinary life is always riddled with the possibility of some sort of uh, inspection and potential, um, you know, potential arrest. Um, but that same process increasingly plays itself out uh, in all of the great cities where migrants go. Mm -hmm. um, so you have, of course, immigration raids on workplaces. At different moments in history, there have been uh, raids in communities. Um, it was common um, at the beginning of this new era of migrant illegality that I am depicting as beginning in the late 1960s. It was, it was very common in, in that era, across the 1970s, for immigration officers to, to simply um, you know, identify target neighborhoods and you know, um, 
you know, and basically inspect people when they're going to the grocery store or going to a public park and things yes. like that. And we've seen, we've seen a resurgence of some of that kind of enforcement. Mm-hmm. Um, um, so what it means is that border struggles now um, have become urban struggles. Yes. You've written about the global deportation regime, and of course that global deportation regime is also linked, closely linked to imperial um, counterinsurgency efforts, including the ongoing war on terror. So I'm interested here in thinking about um, new and old forms of Islamophobia, particularly if we are to think from Europe and then return to the United States and the ways in which, of course, the figure of the Mexican remains the iconic illegal alien. Um, But there are other figures um, that are resuscitated, if you will, and clearly the figure of the Islamic terrorist joins that list Mm -hmm. um, and is part of the remaking of Europe. So I wanted us uh, to talk a bit about um, blackness, perhaps in relation then also to the war on terror, and Islamophobia in particular, the current moment of imperialisms. Right. Um, I think that might be three or four questions. Well, I know. <laughs> so pick a piece of this that's interesting for you. And well, it's all interesting, and I think I tried to get to all of it, but um, it may take a few moves. Um, I mean, the first, the first point that's crucial is to, is to say that in my own research trajectory, an interest in these questions of illegality, deportation and deportability, um, and the general politics of migration, race and citizenship, meant that with the arrival of September 11, 2001, and, um, you know, and the really remarkable way in which those events um, served as the authorizing pretext for a complete overhaul of many of the elementary features of the organization of the immigration regime and the border regime of the United States, I couldn't help but shift to a very concerted focus on the so-called war on terror. And of course, what looked to be the principal target of the war on terror, um, you know, was a new figure, the, you know, the, um, the so-called uh, terrorist or terror suspect which was um, overwhelmingly identified, of course, in a very racialized way with Arabs and other Muslims. Um, And so my work did indeed sort of abruptly sort of um, turn in a sense uh, in a new direction, only then to, to encounter the ways in which, uh, the ways in which the remaking of the entire infrastructure of immigration and borders in the U.S. around the new mandate and imperative of counterterrorism was, in fact, serving uh, to, um, you know, very dramatically revise yet again the terms and conditions of uh, of um, illegality and deportability for everyone, uh, for all migrants, um, and so. And so you have the emergence of the notorious Sensenbrenner bill that was passed by the House of Representatives in the United States in 2005, and then went on to deliberations in the Senate and instigated what really was uh, an unprecedented mass mobilization of migrants and their children in 2006. Mm -hmm. Um, And so in the course of that short period, from the end of 2001, until the beginning of 2006, um, when um, when the war on terror provided a kind of presumptive discourse that disqualified any uh, official political or public discussion of um, of uh, immigration issues in any way that might um, that might suggest um, you know new kinds of uh, new kinds of compromise, new kinds of reforms that would, um, you know, that would revisit um, whether people would be eligible for uh, legalization and eventual naturalization as citizens and so on. Um, 
you have then the folding together of illegal immigration, so-called, and anti-terrorism. And that was explicit in the very title of the, of the bill, known as the Sensenbrenner Bill, that, um, that becomes the bone of contention in that struggle. Um, so, that, so that very deliberate and cynical coupling of so-called illegal migration with anti-terrorism means that the vast majority of migrants, not only illegalized ones, but also legal migrants, um, suddenly are subjected to new kinds of uh, so-called counterterrorism forms of instrumentalized suspicion. Um, and, and it provokes what really was an absolutely unprecedented mass mobilization of literally millions of migrants and their children across the whole country in virtually every city. Uh, some of the largest mass demonstrations and, and marches on record for city after city after city all across the U.S., including uh, in very small places, um, you had mass mobilizations. Um, and, and who are the great majority of people that are out marching? Uh, overwhelmingly, they're migrants, disproportionately people of color, overwhelmingly the working poor, um, and, um, and many of them undocumented, many of them susceptible to arrest and immediate deportation, right? Um, so to make a long story short, it means that, the, that what I call the metaphysics of anti-terrorism were very central to uh, revising the terms and condition uh, for the labor subordination of um, a vast swath of, of, uh, of um, migrants, that this discourse of anti-terrorism, the, the discourse of the war on terror, and the whole variety of very material and practical ways in which that translated into new forms of repressive and punitive um, consequences within the regime of immigration um, and borders um, really plays a very direct productive role in refining the terms of the labor subordination of the great right. majority of migrants. Um, and so in a way, the things that were at the heart of my work from the beginning came back into focus in a new way under these conditions. Um, now, that's not to, that's not to, um, to, to misrecognize that there's a the very central importance of the production of a new kind of potential enemy, a new kind of uh, suspect migrant, uh, who's also a suspect racialized figure mm -hmm. at the center of all of this, which is of course the, the notion of the Islamic terrorist um, and the association of that figure with various kinds of Muslim migrant communities um, in the US and obviously also in Europe. Right. Um, and, um, and so uh, I think those things play themselves out differently between the two contexts, but in the US context, you absolutely have, um, you know, the targeting of what is, you know, you know, what is an important but nonetheless numerically uh, quite small minority in the greater spectrum of of uh, migrant communities or, or communities of color in the United States, um, and that's productive. That that selectivity is productive, um, and and there's a kind of economy of uh, of of selectivity that's also at work in the very notion that this is about sorting through those populations, uh -huh. right? Mm -hmm. um, because there's always because the the dominant metaphysics of anti-terrorism was not a blanket uh, contempt for all Muslims. It was an official and emphatic insistence: there are good ones and bad ones. Right, you know? right. And in that sense, and in that sense, the official discourse of the war on terror was always, uh, including in the mouth of uh, George W. Bush, was always that um, you know that. Uh, that many of the Muslims in the world are, are our friends, so to speak, um, and um, and that you know, and that therefore the the task was always this selective one of sorting and ranking, discerning who are the good ones and who are the bad ones. So it, it meant that all Muslims were subjected to an extraordinary kind of policing and surveillance. It meant that all Muslims were were met with a new kind of demand for. Um, performing allegiance and loyalty, um, but it also but it also meant that um, that there was a, a kind of authorization 
for extraordinary new forms of policing and surveillance that were about detecting what was hidden. So the logic of the war on terror was always about the notion of the sleeper cell, the, the suicide bomber waiting to activate himself, the figure who, who could be your own neighbor, um, who was just waiting for the orders to then you know, wreak havoc and, and produce terror, right? So there's this kind of selectivity that I think is a very important feature rather than intern the entire population in concentration camps as happened to the Japanese, you have instead this much more yes. focused and selective form of logic. And that selectivity, of course, shows up in Trump's Muslim ban, um, authored, as we know, by Steve Bannon. Um, but I think what, what your work, of course, reminds us of is that while Trumpism might be a rupture of various sorts, it has to be understood in this much broader history. And we've got to think about um, the continuities in the global deportation regime and so forth. But I, I did want to pick up on, on the extraordinary protests of 2006, because I'm looking for a moment of hope here. And we all know the backlash that that moment um, then engendered. But there are, of course, um, quite, quite incredible front lines of struggle against Trumpism, and I'm sure there are going to be many more. How should we think about this current moment in the United States, um, but, and, and, and particularly its forms of illegalization and racialization? Uh, this is on my mind as we think about Trump's State of the Union speech yesterday, um, which again made the tired arguments about immigrants as perpetrators of violent crimes. Um, but, but also that this is an opportunity and it has been an opportunity to revive practices and strategies of resistance and justice. Yeah. Um, those again are probably three or four questions. Yes. Um, but I'll try to say a few things. Um, yeah, I mean, one of, one of the one of the things that was electrifying for the struggles in 2006 was the, um, you know, was the grotesque affront to migrant communities that, that suggested to them um, that they were all uh, suspects as criminals or terrorists, right? The way that that manifested itself politically was actually riddled with contradictions because the, the defensive posture that said, we are not criminals, we are not terrorists, always lent itself to the possibility of complicity and what manifested itself openly many times as a kind of complicity with that dominant metaphysics of the war on terror, which is to say, we're not terrorists, they are, right? Or we're not criminals, they are. And who is the they, right? Um, that's, you know, that's a, a very productive and divisive feature of this larger agonistic field, right? Where people are constantly pressured to um, jockey for position in this, um, you know, in this kind of uh, moral economy of deservingness and uh, the moral economy of uh, legitimacy for citizenship, for um, you know, and, and on, on various kinds of grounds. So, so it becomes an occasion on the one hand for those who are produced as the iconic bad immigrant, the illegal, to say, actually, we're the good one. We're the ones who are hardworking, taxpaying, law-abiding, uh, dutiful. Uh, dutifully subjected to the conditions in terms of our labor. Um, and in fact, somebody else is the bad guy, you know. Um, so there was that element that was uh, evident across, across those struggles. On the other hand, there was this much more uh, promising and radical open-ended gesture uh, that I have written about, which was uh, the very prominent uh, chant where people said, you know, here we are, and we're not leaving. And if you kick us out, we'll come right back. Um, so that's what I did describe as a, a politics of incorrigibility yes. uh, and effectively anti-assimilationist mm -hmm. politics of migration and mobility that, that effectively says it's your, it's your immigration regime that has produced our illegality, that has created the conditions for our presence here, um, and so it simultaneously articulates a politics of presence, 
but also a politics of mobility that says even if you deport us, you know, you can never get rid of us. Uh, we'll come right back. Um, and and so in a sense, it seems to me that that open-ended political gesture was a was a very radical one because it because it gestures toward the possibility of a different world. It says, here we are, we're not leaving, you can't get rid of us, so what do we do now? What kind of world can we create? Um, and I think that is you know, a central and instructive feature for thinking about a whole wide range of, of struggles for social justice on a global scale, right? And I think that it, it situates migrants in a central way in relationship to those struggles on a global scale because it also gestures toward rethinking the relationship of the human species to the space of the planet in a way that defies borders and subverts borders and disregards borders and is prepared to say there are other priorities than your laws. As we enter into the last bit of the interview, I want to take that, that concept of incorrigibility and uh, return to your positionality within academia. So I didn't mean to imply that you're the incorrigible subject, right? Um, but, there may but, be an affinity between my research and my own <laughs> disposition. <laughs> but um, there has been clearly brave defiance. Um, and in particular, I want to raise the question of academic freedom, which has always been a matter of urgency, but has renewed urgency, and the ways in which the very technologies and practices of the elite university, including the process of tenure, serve as mechanisms of silencing, disciplining, banishing, expelling, and so forth. So, um, how should we think about academic freedom? What is academic freedom? Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, well, I like to say um, that freedom is not given. Freedom is taken. Mm -hmm. That freedom is not about rights ordained and consecrated and awarded by some other power that freedom uh, is, ex is an exercise. Right? Um, so our freedom as academics is not different than other kinds of freedom um, that we're challenged to inhabit and exercise in every aspect of our lives. Um, as academics within these institutions, of course, as you suggest, we're subjected to incredibly powerful disciplinary mechanisms uh, in a way that's analogous to what I tried to suggest about migrant illegality and the border, the crossing of borders that subjects people to a continuous process of hardship and disciplining that functions as a kind of apprenticeship. We can understand the larger uh, tenure process, um, both with all of the preparation that leads to a tenure track job, as well as all of the things that happen thereafter. Um, as, as a very prolonged and protracted kind of apprenticeship that is deeply disciplinary, and that is about uh, training people for a certain kind of submission uh, that, you know, in a very perverse way, is about self-policing for you know, the great majority of the time. Um, and so when you raise the question of silencing, um, it also is about the complicity between our own material and practical circumstances as professionals with uh, arguably middle-class uh, lives um, and the, you know, the privileges that come with professional jobs. Um, the, the complicity between those benefits and advantages of our, of our particular kind of work and, uh, and the oftentimes unspoken and unwritten mandates that we behave ourselves within our uh, working contexts. So, so of course, there's a great deal of room for interpretation um, and what it translates into in practice for the great majority of people is a certain uh, compliance, conformity, uh, 
submissiveness um, and general and general silence. Um, and so like many other freedoms and many other so-called rights, uh, you discover, you only discover that you don't really have them until you try to use them. Um, and you also conversely only discover what they really mean when you do use them, <laughs> you know? Um, so in my own experience, um, you know, in some ways I feel like my, you know, um, my greatest, the greatest experience in my life of academic freedom was precisely when I um, dared to speak in a way that was unencumbered and unhibited by those considerations, um, which of course was taking a risk, which of course uh, involved various kinds of repercussions and, and punitive consequences. So what are the ways in which we might in fact take or take back academic freedom? And by we, I mean sort of those of us committed to the project of critical work, um, of decolonizing uh, scholarship. The Relational Poverty Network is an intergenerational project and there are many young academics and junior faculty who are a part of it who are living um, this dilemma every day. So in what ways uh, can we take back that freedom or take it? There was just a, a slowing down of the, of the sound. So I was saying that um, the Relational Poverty Network is an intergenerational project um, with many young academics and, and junior scholars who are living this dilemma every day um, of the self-policing, of the disciplinary mechanisms. In what ways can we as academics take back that freedom? In what ways can we continue the work of critical theory, of uh, public engagement, of, of scholarship and research that has a decolonizing intent? Mm -hmm. Or is that no longer possible within our thoroughly globalized, neoliberalized universities? Yeah. Well, I do, I do think it is possible. Um, I think it's uh, as necessary or more necessary than ever, I think. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I, and I don't have any kind of magic formula by which to sort of propose that we do this, except to suggest that, um, you know, that we need to be prepared. Um, uh, we need to be prepared to take risks and put ourselves at risk and put our comfort and our privileges at risk um, in defense of what it is that we profess. If we are professors, then we should be pressed to answer for what it is that we profess. Um, and if we um, want to defend the truth as we have come to understand it on the basis of our research and our scholarship, um, then, um, then we have to be uh, truth tellers. We have to be able to speak uh, speak that truth in a fearless way, in a way that is uh, that is uh, unencumbered by the various ways in which uh, those disciplinary mechanisms um, are at work permanently to sort of police our speech. Um, and when I say speech here, I mean not only our our public speaking, but also um, what we write and how we write and where we where we write. One of the challenges for academics who are interested in a larger politics of decolonization and, uh, you know, and other uh, radical visions of freedom and remaking the world has always been that the academy becomes a kind of, uh, a kind of sink pit where, <laughs> where all of our energies are, you know, are completely consumed by things that actually render us uh, less and less relevant to wider and wider audiences. So there's always that challenge to figure out how to also speak um, beyond uh, those particular rarefied contexts that are recognized and rewarded within academia. But of course, you know, but of course it's not, there's no easy solution. We, you know, we, we are, um, if we are against these structures of power, we are also, we're also within them. We're operating within them in a very material and practical way. We live with the consequences of having to satisfy those expectations and demands when I was fired from Columbia University, it was very easy for them to pretend that it had nothing to do with my political speech, that it was purely a, an academic evaluation, um, which of course, um, 
it transparently was not. And on the other hand, and it was not even a credible case that somehow I had not satisfied uh, the, the demands of any kind of academic evaluation. But, um, but at the end of the day, the way that power works within the university relies to a great, ex to a great extent on the discretion of those who, who exercise power. Um, so that discretionary power, again, has a certain resemblance to the discretionary power of all kinds of other actors who are implicated in uh, the production of other people's precarity. Um, and, and so I think that, you know, there could be a much more extended conversation about ways to uh, reimagine the university as an institution, uh, ways, to, ways to restructure particular kinds of relationships and the exercise of various kinds of oversight and power. But, um, but without going in that direction, I think the, the deeper challenge is that we have to com be committed to, uh, to our vocation as intellectuals. And in that sense, it's not different than the advice I've given every prospective PhD student who ever came to speak to me, which, which is essentially, um, you, um, you have no guarantee at the end of this process that there's a job for you. So you have to believe that your project matters. You have to believe and care about it and feel that there's something that you have to do and you have to say that, um, that really is meaningful and matters and that it, you know, and that requires that you commit yourself to that work regardless of the consequences. Nick, that's a wonderful um, exposition of academic freedom and an inspiring note on which to conclude this interview, which of course is not hopefully the conclusion of conversations. Um, but thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us at the Relational Poverty Network. Thank you.